Hello, I am Antonia Preble and you're listening to The Most of It, where I speak to people with a range of expertise and experiences as I endeavour to find the answer to one big question. How do we make the most of our lives? Today's episode is a very special one because I get to chat to someone who I not only admire greatly, but who is also a very dear friend of mine. Robin Malcolm is one of New Zealand's most acclaimed and loved actresses. She is an award-winning star of both stage and screen and has played so many beloved characters, most notably, of course, the leather and lace dynamo that is Cheryl West on Outrageous Fortune. I wanted to get Robin on this podcast because to me, she is someone who really makes the most of her life. She is a deep thinker, she goes for what she wants, and she doesn't shy away from life's challenges. Today, we cover so many topics and potentially get carried away on a few of them. I pick Robin's brain about body image, about how she approaches her life and work, how she manages to balance her professional and personal life, and of course, we reminisce about those heady days on Outrageous Fortune. Robin is such a vibrant, fun, and honest person. She has so much wisdom to share. I really loved being able to chat to her about some of life's big questions, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hi, Robin. Hi. It's so nice to see you. It's really nice to see you too. And I was thinking it's kind of ridiculous that I have to interview you for my podcast to get to catch up. But that's us as actresses, right? Is that we can't actually communicate unless we have an audience. And, yeah, and le- unless yeah. we're working. And I was going to say unless we're getting paid to do it, but yeah, neither it's, of us it's are like that thing this. of you know, if a tree falls down in the woods and no one, what is that one? You know, if a tree falls down the wood and no and no one sees it, did it really happen? Did it really happen, or does it scream or something? Does it scream? Or does it? Do trees scream? I don't know. Is that the metaphor? I don't, I'm probably mixing my metaphors. Yeah. Anyway, if we're <laughs> anyway. not in front of an audience, we don't exist. We don't exist, even though we live quite close to each other. It's just yeah. hard to catch up. I know, it's so lovely to see you. Well, thank you for coming. And I'm really stoked you are part of this podcast because I just think that you have a lot to offer the conversation of how to make the most of our lives. Because to me, you are someone who just really gets amongst life and you're not afraid of it getting messy or hard. You really embrace it for all that it is. So I think you've got a lot to offer this conversation. Oh, as my friend calls me, you're a wonderful disaster. (laughs) (laughs) A wonderful disaster. (laughs) Is that a compliment, do you think? Well, I took a breath in and then I took it as a compliment. Yeah, great. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? Uh, Yeah, a wonderful disaster. I mean, I guess that means things are interesting all the time. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, who wants to be a gentle breeze on a summer day when you can be Hurricane Laura? Yeah, I can't think of it. Actually, that's a terrible joke. I shouldn't (laughs) make that joke. Okay, we'll move on. Yeah. So, first of all, how are you feeling about the state of the world? I view what's happening at the moment a bit like the stars in the sky. It's actually too big to get your head around. You know, like you can ask specific things like, what is this virus like? And will Donald Trump really get in again? Mm. You know, like you, but in terms of where the world is going on a whole, I can't wrap my head around it, so I just practice ostrich. Mm-hmm. Some of it's terrifying, and yet some of it's hopeful. 
you know, like I feel like we're at some kind of weird crossroads right now where climate and population and crony capitalism and awful right-wing are all colliding and we're in this space where as a kind of a, a species we can either get ourselves out of it or we can dig ourselves deeper in and I don't know what's going to happen. Mostly at the moment I feel so grateful to be living here. I feel really protected by this government. I feel like they're not making political decisions, they're making human being decisions. And I draw that line deliberately. And compared to the rest of the world, I know it's a sort of a catchphrase now, but we're just so much safer. I trust them, which I think is a it's a huge and uncommon thing to be able to say about a government that you really trust them. And mm. I do. So in that sense, I feel hugely grateful to be here. Mm. So how are you feeling about work moving forward? It's an interesting time because I am at that scary age, you know. I'm 55 now and there aren't the stories out there yet for women my age. There are a few and I think that will improve I hope that will improve. I'm going to make it yeah, improve. absolutely. You know, so, so there's that, which has always been a given, and there's the fact that this is still a pretty sexist industry, but that's starting to change. And there is the diversity thing, which is something that, you know, personally I go, oh, damn, I missed out on that role. Mm. But then I completely support it, yeah, and it should be right that, thing. and it, it yeah. absolutely should be that way. So having said all of those things, really it doesn't feel any different because you know what it's like. You're either working or you're not. Mm -hmm. And when you're not working, you're terrified. And when you are working, you're really pissed off that you have to get up at four in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You know? So I don't know. I feel quite hopeful about it. I feel like, you know, there should be a few more productions will come in here. I think, as I've been banging on about for the last couple of weeks, I think we need a quota system for New Mm -hmm. Zealand actors. I don't think it's fair that we don't, and I'm in the process of still trying to make my own stuff. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, because I figure, you know, I definitely went into actor prison for a bit after Outrageous, you know. It's like nobody can see you as anything else other than the character that you've become very known for, which is fair enough. But deeply frustrating. Oh, really frustrating. And the the stupid thing about it is, is that you want to go... Yes, the reason why you've attached me to this role is because I'm bloody good and you can attach me to another role. And I can be good at something else too. I can be good at, I can be good at something else too. It's not but that requires some imagination, I think. So do you think we finished filming Outrageous in 2011. Yeah. Are you still feeling those kind of remnants of people attaching you as Cheryl? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Somebody even said to me with this town, they went, oh, so similar to Cheryl. I was like, no. I mean, we look a little the same because I have the same face, but she <laughs> seriously, no. Isn't Pam like a cop who's really kind of dowdy and wears no makeup and like salt yeah. of the earth? 
Yeah. Great Kiwi lass. Yeah. yeah. Not, yeah. Not, Cheryl. Not, not Cheryl. Flat boot with khaki shorts, you know, her <sighs> whole her whole wardrobe is Steve Irwin. Yeah. And has never stood in front of a mirror in her life. Brilliant. It's quite dogged. I said to one of my sisters, and my sisters are brilliantly honest all the time, and I went, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm, I'm actually, I mean, it's great and it was liberating, but... I'm a real dog in this film. <laughs> and Jen went, oh, don't be silly. You couldn't be. You couldn't. And then I showed her a photograph and she went, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> oh, you really are. You well, are. How do you navigate that whole side of things, the aesthetic body image side of things, which seems to, I wanted to say it affects women more than men, but I perhaps that's slightly a generalisation because men, actor men, yeah. <laughs> actors do also get affected by that. But how have you managed to navigate that vanity, I, I guess, issue oh, and, and the like importance every, of what you look like. Like everybody, I think the job we do is is awful for that because you're constantly having to stare at your own mush, you know, like you're sitting in front of a mirror for an hour and a half every morning mm-hmm. staring at yourself while someone is, or trying not to, you know, while someone is busy doing their thing, doing yeah. their thing and then you're on camera and then if you're going to look at any of your work back, you're having to see yourself again and you're scrutinising yourself from every angle and all those things that you can vaguely avoid in a mirror. You can't avoid when you're on screen. 360, unfortunately. It's a total 360, (laughs) unfortunately. And from week to week, you know, you're bloated week when you're menopausal, menstrual. That's where my world is right now. Um, And then, then you you know, the the afternoon where you ate too much Putting at lunch mm. and you can see it sitting on your jet, you know, all that stuff. So for me, it's been just a battle not to care. And I've won it sometimes and I've lost it some other times. And a battle not to care, meaning a battle to not change any of your behavior. Yeah. With the focus of looking a particular way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do remember, and it had never happened to me before, but I did, I got really stuck into Pilates when we were doing Outrageous for a while there because I I had the time. You know, I had nannies and this job and I could stop in and do a Pilates class on the way home or on the way to work or whatever. There was a short period of time there. I think I must have been quite stressed as well. It didn't last for long, but I I got a six-pack. And I, I mean, I have never been a six-pack sort of person. I've never had a six-pack. <laughs> more of a, more of a very small keg, probably. But, <laughs> and I remember staring at myself in the mirror, going, "Oh my God, I am such a legend! Look at that!" Like I, there was a bit of vanity for yeah. that moment. But then, like a good review, you can't take it seriously because then you're going to get a bad review. You know, it's like I had to go, okay, if you're going to attach good feelings to this. That means that when you stop doing Pilates and you go back to drinking red wine again, you're not going to have that. And are you then going to be depressed mm-hmm. about it? Like you can't. I think that's the thing. And I've I've learnt maybe over the years that anger helps me, I think. Mm. I saw a lovely thing on Instagram the other day that if women weren't insecure about how they looked, so many companies would go bankrupt the next day, you know, and mm. that bit angers me. It's like I know that I am part of, like so many women, I get impacted on by the media mm-hmm. and by what's fed me and what I was fed as a little girl. And and that 
makes me angry, which then makes me feel a little stroppier and a little bit more equipped to deal with my own vanity when I have to. And great, whatever gets you galvanized, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, because you're right, it's such a it's yeah. such a fruitless path to go down to start worrying about oh, what you look like. Oh, it's awful. It's just yeah. awful. And and I'm finding actually the older I get, the less inclined I am to worry about it. Yeah, great. Because all that stuff, you know, like if you fight aging, you'll lose. If you mm-hmm. fight developing a postmenopausal belly, you'll lose. <laughs> if you fight death, you'll lose. Probably lose as well. You'll lose that yeah. as well. So I'm learning a bit more of that now. And yeah, great. I love seeing normal-looking women on screen. I love it. So do I. I love it. So do I. And I just think, how ridiculous is it that we've become accustomed to only seeing a really tiny strata of women portrayed on screen? Yeah. And all portraying a vastly different array of characters, but they all look a certain way. And that just seems not indicative of all of what we're trying to do, which is tell real stories about the whole world. So, yeah, I I agree. It does seem to be going in the right direction, but it... Well, I hope so. I mean, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Because you see all that, particularly America, you see all that on screen, and then you go to Los Angeles... And they all look like that. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Like they're, it's like they're feeding each other. It's like this this looping thing going yeah, on. Very hard. But then you go out into the rest of America, and no one looks like that. Mm-hmm. They just look normal. And I think in New Zealand, we're we're doing okay in comparison to other countries. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's it is still an issue here. But like, I've never been told or thought that I should lose weight for a part, which is good because I would have, <laughs> that would have been really, I would have been really pissed off yeah. <laughs> if that had happened. But I think that's um, account for you know New oh, Zealand companies. Look, and I things. mean the wonderful Katarina Denave. I'll never forget yeah. her in the well, it must have been the second season of Outrageous when I had had my second baby, and I was working really hard and breastfeeding, so the weight started to come off me. And the phone rang, and it was Katarina on the other end of the phone saying, "Don't make me come over there and eat cream with you." <laughs> and it was like you're losing your love handles over your jeans and I don't want to lose those. Amazing. And I, I thought you must be the only network, mm. network executive on the planet who would do that. And actually who cared about you. And who cared about me. Yeah, exactly. who, was, who was worried that you might not be okay. Yeah. And wanted to make sure that you were. Yeah. 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 Oh. Bless her. Can you believe that Outrageous was 2005? It was 15 years ago that we started. <laughs> <laughs> It was such a long time ago. What are your... Oh, there's been a lot of blood under the bridge since then. (laughs) So much blood under the bridge since then. What outrageous was a huge pivotal moment in my career, but when you look back, do you think it was a really pivotal moment in yours as well? Oh, help, yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help. I never say that. I must be because I'm talking to a Because you're mother, being recorded. And, and being, your mum might hear. Your mum goes, oh, help, yes. Help, yes. Oh, help. Oh, help, Outrageous yes. was rather, <laughs> it was rather pivotal. Goodness gracious, yes. Yeah, no, it was, absolutely. I mean, in, in a bunch of ways. I mean, the fact that that show was so groundbreaking here and the sort of the magnitude of it really and the fact that it went on for so long and the and the fact that also you were doing work every week that was interesting mm-hmm. yeah know, it never got boring did it? it never got boring tiring but never boring yeah and it and it gave me a level of 
confidence as well. It definitely helped when I went to get work in Australia afterwards. You know, oh, no, I'm massively grateful for it. It was, I mean, I couldn't do it again. Oh, maybe I could. Not that. You, you know, I mean, the, you you live through those shows and then like a piece of theatre you go, right, that's that done. Unless you do a whole other, you yes, take it, you know. Adjunct to l- it. Like, like you did, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, no, that was life-changing. Mm. Really life-changing. So what do you, I guess, what's your brightest memory from that whole time? Like what do you think about when you think of Outrageous? Uh, the work, actually. Mm-hmm. Us on set. Just us on set playing. Just that family. I mean, what an extraordinary, no wonder actors are bonkers. Just that being able to walk into a space and role play for a number of hours a day with people you love and with characters that you love and take them on these massive journeys. And particularly, I reckon, in the second and third seasons when we became aware that it was being loved by an audience, just knowing that you were part of something that was really working and that was being loved the way it was. I mean, that was a that was such a great feeling. But it was the being on set. It was being in that house. Yeah. I always loved Brian Sargent at lunchtime when one of the caterers would put coriander on the fresh coriander and he would go, you know that speech that Eric did about Palmerston North? You know, Palmerston, he used to do the same speech about coriander. <laughs> coriander! Coriander, who puts coriander? <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of um, of big personalities on that yeah. show. Who, you know, people who had strong needs and wants, just, yeah. just like the characters. That's right. That's right. And actually, that that is the bit that I loved as well was the fact that we were all stroppy as hell. So someone was always getting told off, <laughs> and someone was always in tears, and someone was always angry. And then in the middle of it all, everyone was pissing themselves a yeah. lot. I've never worked on a show like it in terms of that kind of volatility and sort of fireworks and that inner combustion that was just always on set. I've never experienced it again. And I think that is probably one of the reasons it did so well. There was some kind of, yeah, internal energy to it all that translated. And a sort of a dirty mongrel in it. And I mean, you (laughs) must have felt that with Westside though. I, yes, but not in the same way. And I'm partly, I think it was actually it, because it was a different show and set, it was a period piece. And so the, the right. tone and the energy yeah. was just more contained. It was written in that way. Whereas Outrageous was Shakespearean in, yeah. in name and in substance, really. Yeah. It was, so, eh? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So it, it did feel. I just turned myself. It was, eh? It was really Shakespearean, <laughs> wasn't it? It was, really- <laughs> it was so like Shakespearean. <laughs> So what do you think was the most challenging part about acting or an acting career and also about doing Outrageous for you? Well, for me it was most definitely, it was just the logistics of it. It was the fact that I was a solo mother from before Pete was born and then so in the second season I had a an 18-month-old and a newborn and I was doing 60 hours a week on that show. And I remember at one point, I mean, it was it was insane, but I decided that because life had got, you know, quite rough there for a minute, that the kids weren't going to be penalised. And I hemorrhaged money on childcare. So I had two nannies running at one point. So I had a nanny at home with Charlie and the other nanny would bring the baby out to set at 
sort of nine o'clock so that I could breastfeed him and hang with him when I wasn't working. And we did that for maybe the first four or five months until Pete was a little older and he could have solids. And then I went back to one nanny. And and actually, despite the fact that an enormous amount of my income, nearly all my, went on that, it kept them and me level. But the routine of, I lived in Devonport and I used to get up at half past four and I would sit in the living room in the dark and express milk, you know, till about five and then put it in the fridge. And then one of the nannies would sleep, lived with us. And so I would then sneak out the door because, you know, your call times are usually around about quarter past six. Mm. So I would drive and then Pete would turn up around about nine and then I would get home at seven just in time to put Charlie to bed if I was lucky. But Pete was breastfeeding, so I would be feeding Pete at 10 and then midnight and then usually around about 3 and then I was getting up at half past four. So there was this period there where I think I was functioning on about three hours sleep a night. And I do remember the ground just sometimes would just come up to meet me on set. I don't know how you did that. Really. I actually don't know how I did it either. Because on top of that, you're having to learn lines. Yeah. And actually retain them so yeah. you can actually say them. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, that sort of fell That sort of went by the wayside a few times. But... You know, when you're in those sort of highly, it wasn't stressful, it was hard. It was just hard and intense. You don't think of it in that way until afterwards and you look back and you go, wow, that was hard and intense because at the time you're just doing it. Because you just have to, right? And you have to. And, And in the middle of it all were these two babies who were just, you know, my heart and soul and then my work, which was my other heart and soul. So there was amazing stuff to be gained from doing it that way. And I do remember, you know, wonderful Carmen Leonard, who was our line producer at the time, being so aware of where I was at. Because she knew, because she was a mum. She knew, because she was a a mum, and she knew everything that had been going on. And Mm. so she would clock me every now and then, and she would check in. And then there was this amazing time when I kind of had a bit of a breakdown on set and she put me in a hotel for 24 hours oh, bless her. and I rang my dad and he came up from Tauranga and he looked and she went they'll be fine they'll be fine they'll cope and I literally just sat in this catatonic state in this hotel for 24 hours just breathing yeah and it was all I needed you know it's funny isn't it it's like when you if you know that someone else knows and is watching and is aware then you can sort of do anything. Mm, Meaning like they've got your back. They've got your back. And I really felt like they had my back. So in that sense, there was never a point when I went, oh, I'm being underappreciated. It wasn't that at all. It was just just hard. Just hard. The work itself was just joyous all the time, even when I was in a bad mood. (laughs) Kirk used to come on set sometimes and look at me like, how are you today? (laughs) Are you going to yell at me today? Are you going to yell? Are you going to get shitty today? You know, you know. But even those days were an absolute joy. So the whole thing was entirely two hundred and fifty percent worth it. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you have that feeling about it, despite everything that was going on. Because yeah, it really was a 
really challenging time for you. How do you cope with challenging times? Like, do you give yourself daily or rituals or things you can do to sort of keep your mental health in check or how, yeah, how do you approach your life when really, really hard things happen? A walk. When Simone de Beauvoir and um, Jean-Paul Sartre broke up, she walked eight hours a day. She walked it out and I used to walk a lot. And in that early time, interestingly, actually, it was the Pilates that really helped because I felt I ended up feeling incredibly physically strong. And you had a six-pack, so everything was fine. And I had a six-pack. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's so it was actually the best time of your life. It was actually the best time of my life. I just stand in front of the mirror and go, I don't care what else is going on. I am incredible. I am incredible. <laughs> I don't know where it's gone now. but And I would cry a lot. I used to cry. I think I have quite a good relationship with laziness when I need to. I do know how to just lie about and do nothing. And that helps. I mean, I've never been able to meditate or anything like that. And I used to read the odd self-help book and go, oh, I can't do that. Not for you. No, well, yeah. I'd try. I'd try. You just cope, don't you? I mean, you rely on your friends and your family. Oh, no, there were definitely moments when I would think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But you do. And it's that lovely thing about getting older that, you get through one thing, which gives you a little bit more wisdom for the next one and then a little bit more faith for the next one because life is really not easy a lot of the time, which I think is the point. And instead of panicking every time something really terrible happens or I'm finding it much easier now to just sort of accept things a little bit. Mm. I didn't so much back then. I fought a lot harder back then and I probably wasted quite a lot of energy. I honestly don't know. I don't have a method. I just think I remember really vividly, actually, there was a particularly hard, really challenging couple of months. And I remember walking along Nasaringa Road in Devonport where we lived for a long time and there was a beautiful big Portakawa tree on the opposite side of the road and I remember noticing it in bloom and noticing that I hadn't noticed that kind of stuff in a number of months. And it made me feel like I was coming right. Wow. Because I was... That's awesome. I was looking again. Present again. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas for a number of months I'd had my head down in a frown, you know, and I'd just been really struggling. And then suddenly the, the world, when the world stares back at you again and you feel like the world is seeing you, everything just starts to calm down again. And, of course, kids are brilliant for that because kids kind of go, well, I don't really care what's going on in your inner world right now. We really, really have to stop and look at these ants. We really <laughs> do. And you know what? They're absolutely right. And they're absolutely right. They're <laughs> you so you right. do need to look at those ants, and actually that probably is a better thing to do That's with, right. with the time. That's right. Why am I in my horrible old thoughts, you know, yeah. swirling around out here when there's beautiful things happening, you know, right in front of my eyes? That's all part of living too, isn't it? It's a massive learning curve. There are so many things in the past that if I had to go through those experiences again, I would do them differently. But that's the point because I've grown and I've learned and I've changed. There are some things I wouldn't, but probably one thing that's helped 
is I don't think I'm very rigid mm. in my thinking. I can sort of try stuff on and and then decide that that's not working. So go another way. Or do you think acting's helped you? Yeah, yeah, do yeah. That? Yeah, because you're literally used to trying on different yeah, clothes right. and people and uh, yeah. seeing how this person thinks about things and this other perspective over here. Yeah, and yeah. it's a really it's also great to give you a perspective on your own. Like I sometimes think of emotional states as a bit like weather patterns where you can go, oh, wow, there's really quite heavy rain coming today. And and being an actor gives you that perspective as well. I mean, I do remember the first time I was ever dumped by a bloke and I bought myself some little bottle of whiskey, I think because I'd seen somebody do it in the movies. And look really cool. <laughs> and I was weeping and wailing and I was so upset. And I do remember, I must have been 20, I do remember going and standing in front of a mirror just to see how tragic I really did look. Do you mean like because you'd use it for your next part? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to see how... This is great research. <laughs> this is great research, but also I am doing tragedy so well right now. Oh, oh you mean, yeah, to look, really look at you and be like, this is awesome. You are doing it right now. I'm yeah. doing it right now. This would get me an Oscar. This That's would, great. I mean, yeah, if only someone was filming this. <laughs> I mean, you know, now we have phones, yeah, right? You, you could have. You yeah. could have. Damn it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing is, is that I think what I do is the best job in the world. What we do is the best job in the world. Because it's seen so often as kind of frivolous, like who we are, maybe. Oh, you know, oh, you're being all actressy. You're being, but it's, what do people do in lockdown? What do they do? They watch TV and movies. Yeah. They watched TV and movies. They wanted story. They mm-hmm. wanted, you know, my boys got into Snowpiercer, apocalyptic tale mm-hmm. about post-climate change, train ripping through the snow. I watched Dairy Girls because it just made me laugh and laugh and laugh. We watched reruns of Friends. Reruns, right. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I watched Deadwood again, you know. We're really, really important because not because I, Robin, am important, but because story is important. Mm -hmm. We really need it and it really helps and it throws up such perspective for people. The fortunate thing is that when we do what we do, we love it. Why do you love it? Uh, Because it's play and I love the poetry of story. I'm fascinated by human beings and how we muddle through. I love the connection that it makes with an audience. And I love being an audience member and having that connection made for me. Like I I love being moved by the story I'm being told as much as I love doing it. And I really believe in it. I think story can change the world sometimes. And I love dressing up, you know, I mean, the play nature of it too, just the simple fact that you get to sit within your own childhood a lot of the time, that you get to pretend you're the king of the world or you get to pretend that you're the monster under the bridge or whatever. I mean, the fact that you're you're working with your imagination in a way that many adults, because of the jobs that they choose to do, that they also love, They don't get to play in that way that we do. That's another way of coping sometimes is that it's like you don't have to necessarily have a breakdown in life because you can have it on screen. (laughs) I'll just shelve this uh, breakdown and I'll just use it next week. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. 
right, which doesn't always work, which doesn't always work, but just being able to experience the breadth of humanity through the characters that you play. Like there are so many experiences that I would never have in my own life that I've managed to have as a character. It's a bit like, I always remember Miranda Harcourt saying that actors are internal bungee jumpers. Mm. And I've always loved that for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's a a lot of why I love it too. I think almost my favourite part of acting is rehearsing when you're sitting around with a director and the other actor figuring out a scene or, you know, figuring out a relationship, figuring out what's really going on What's going on, yeah. Because I just find that so infinitely interesting, working out what makes people take what this bizarre experience of being human and being various different human yeah, beings yeah, in the parts yeah, you yeah. play is yeah. yeah, infinitely interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. And also yeah. that beautiful thing of, which sounds weird, but genuine connection with another actor. And so even though is what we're striving for, even though there's so much artifice on a film set or on a, on a stage and you're saying lines that are written for you, both you and the other actor are using all the intention you've got to make a genuine connection with each other. Mm. And with as little in the way as possible. Mm. Whereas in life, we have so much in the way and so often we're trying desperately to not connect and to not be vulnerable and all of those things. Whereas in our jobs, we desperately want those things to happen. And sometimes we get in the way and make me mean that that, 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 doesn't happen. That's right. But that's the intention. I think it's a really beautiful thing. It is. And when it happens, it's the best, right? Like it's just you feel your whole body's in flow with the universe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Meaning because that's what we're supposed to do is just be present and connected well, with each other. Well, also it's even with characters that are really trying hard not to connect, the fact that you've got to dig into that and work out why is such a great thing. It's like the more you work, the more you learn about yourself. Absolutely. Because you're yeah. just that lovely thing of people are never quite what they seem. You know, what I'm saying and what I'm really thinking don't necessarily line up. And so when you're playing a character who's like that, it's just wonderful being able to get under the skin of that and discover the humanity of that and discover that stuff in yourself as well. Yeah, it's just infinitely interesting, sort of just the the stuff of life. So slight segue here, but do you, in terms of how you think about your life and approach your life, do you think like everything happens for a reason, we're here to learn or everything's just chaos and we experience it? Do you have a belief system around your life and what happens? No, I don't. uh, We're animals that have taken over the planet because we've evolved to the most amazing degree that we've evolved. And our primary concerns are to stay alive and procreate and keep the species going. Everything else is kind of gravy, really. And I guess in a way it's pretty sort of existential, I suppose, as I think really simply your life is what you make of it. And unfortunately, as my mother used to always say, the family is the factory where people are made, you know, that some people are just luckier than others in terms of where they come from and in terms of the upbringing. So maybe one of the journeys of getting older is to really look at what you were gifted as a baby, as a person, as a child and and not necessarily making the most out of it, but being a good person with it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of incredibly successful people out there that are not necessarily good people. So it's on its own terms, isn't it? It's like I could choose 
to not have friends and just be really grumpy and angry at the world all the time and that would be fine and I would die and that's how people would think of me or I could choose to enjoy my life and make great connections with people and enjoy my friends and enjoy my work and not get too wound up or stressed about things that I have no control over and more than anything try and fall in love with the world more and more each day so that this little kind of like zip of time that I have just for my own experience, I, I enjoy, you know, like I don't. So what are you going for in life? Do you have a North Northern star in terms of, is it a happy life you want? Is it a fulfilled life you want? Do you actively go for something or do you more go with the flow? No, I do go for something. I think I do. I go for (laughs) Winnie the Pooh. Poetry and hums aren't things that you get. They're things that get you, and all you can do is go where they can find you. That, I know it sounds trite, is probably where I sit. I seek out the places where I know the fulfilling stuff is. And for me, that's work kids love the world curiosity you know my granny she died at 96 and she asked my brother-in-law at 95 she went look I just really have never understood how electricity works could you explain it to me you know like her her natural curiosity about her world and world politics and why this was happening. She never stopped, and I've always loved that about her, and that's always been something I've aspired to. I think the minute we lose curiousness, we sort of lose the point. Because, of course, with COVID, we all sat around and twiddled our thumbs a bit, and probably a lot of us wondered what the whole point of everything was because suddenly we weren't being driven by having to get up at a certain point and having to do the, you know, get breakfast and having to get in the car and having the to blah, blah, blah. pillars of our identity, right, stripped away. That's right, yeah. that's right. And without those, I mean, I found that quite interesting to go, without all of that, who am I? It's such a good question to ask. Does it matter to me that I don't matter? Well, I matter to my kids, you know, I matter to those close to me. It was an interesting sort of ego challenge to go through and an important one, I think, and in a weird sort of way reassuring. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't be very clear about it really, but I don't. No, I think you are being clear. I don't have a thing. Like, do you, do you set goals for yourself? Do you have specific dreams, a vision for your life that you, you know, put in the sand and that you're going for? Or do you try to just remain open or is it? Oh, no, I'm pretty open. Mm -hmm. I think, like, I have certain projects or certain things that I might want to do, and they'll be very specific. I'll be like, this is a good idea. I want to do this. But being a solo mum in a long-distance relationship, doing the job that I do, has meant pretty much that if I put goals in the sand and if I try to make something happen, 
something will come along and knock it sideways. And it drives my family bananas because I've got a very organised family and we like to organise Christmas 12 months out. <laughs> On Boxing Day. Okay. On Boxing No, literally, <laughs> literally. We joke about it. We joke about it. Brilliant. And then they look at me and I go, I'll let you know on the 24th of December because I can't. I, li- I, can't. I may be here or I literally might be in Timbuktu. <laughs> like, literally, that's right. That's right. That's right. I may be on the moon. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. So I've learned not to attach too much to that stuff and I've learned to kind of love what's in front of me. And if that's a kind of, you know, like say if I'm shooting something, it's all about that and I don't think too beyond that. I think before, you know, like before, a few decades ago when I didn't have kids and I was a sort of a, I was going to say a loose unit, I meant a free wheel (laughs) (laughs) or a free meal. (laughs) One of the above, all of the above, who knows? All of the above, that's right. (laughs) I think I planned ahead a lot more. And these days I don't. I mean, all all I know is that I want to see my kids happy and healthy and I want to keep working and I want to keep doing work that inspires me and that I love doing and that has got, that for me has some kind of value, even if it's just, I know this is going to make people laugh. And to make more effort with my friendships and nurture those connections. It's really not much bigger than that. You know, I mean, when I was at drama school, I had goals. I was going to be a leading member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Well, <laughs> yeah, life went slightly differently, and that's totally fine. Are you okay with that? Yeah, they they pay terribly. <laughs> <laughs> so you're okay with the version of life that has yeah. panned out. Yeah. Do you are you someone who regrets things or, you know, wishes it was different or are you pretty good at Well the thing is is that if you regret stuff, then it means you can't like where you've ended up. And I like where I've ended up. I like where you've ended up. Oh thanks. <laughs> I think Thank it's you. great where you've ended up. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. I feel all right if I haven't showered today, but other than that I, I feel haven't quite, either actually <laughs> Thank God this is not scratch and sniff. <laughs> that technology is yet. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. And so I would have to wish some of this away to rub out some of the mistakes or the issues of the past, and I don't know that I want to do that. I really don't. It sounds a little bit clichéd, but I feel like I've lived enough of it now to know that there is an absolute truth in that. And there are definitely things where one can go, well, I certainly learned from that. Help, yes. <laughs> Help, yes, I rather did. I rather learned. Very important lesson. <laughs> <laughs> or to bring one of my father's words in, a tremendous lesson was learned by that experience. <laughs> tremendous. <laughs> Bless trem- your dad. That's tremendous, so Robin Malcolm. Tremendous. <laughs> so I really do sound a bit hippie, don't I? But I feel enormously grateful. I feel like it's a bit of a journey. And I don't really quite know where I'm going. And I kind of really like that because anything can happen. And I would like to pay my mortgage off before I die. That would be really. That would be a great thing. That's a goal. There's (laughs) a goal for you. There's There's my goal. goal. (laughs) Pay my mortgage off. Yeah. But other than that. Not much more than that. Yeah. 
there's interesting research coming out about gratitude at the moment and how the act of practicing of gratitude just helps our brains out so much, meaning yeah. like it is the natural state we should be in. And if it's one of the best things we can do for keeping good mental health is yeah. be, you know, practice the attitude of gratitude. And it sounds so cliched. There is a cliche, attitude of gratitude, but it's true, I think. I, yeah. You only have to experience it once or twice mm-hmm. to wake up in the morning and think, oh, this is happening and or, oh, God damn it, I have to do this today or, oh, I wish I had more money in the bank or, it's raining, I love the sound of rain on the roof, and here I am in my little house with my boys and my dog. It couldn't get any, you know, like it's it's just, you know, it's like, you know, Shakespeare, nothing good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, and it's very, very true. And so much of it is about not, because I think gratitude's different to being thankful. Yes, Gratitude's a much more of a state of being. It's just having Seems deeper, a doesn't well. It? It's well, yeah. I mean, but it's always been around. We just had different words for it. You know, come on, jugs half full. Mm-hmm. That's all gratitude is. And now, of course, you know, we we put it in the context of kind of modern post-Buddhist parlance, but it's the same thing. You know, look on the bright side of life. All that stuff. Really hard to do sometimes. Um, but a great anchor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you can't do it, to know that you probably should, I think, yeah. is quite useful. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, then yeah. you know you've gotten away from something and you know what the anchor is to eventually yeah. come back to once you've finished drinking whiskey and crying in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> but even then I was grateful for that. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, this whiskey glass is half full. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, I think that is a, a beautiful place to leave this, Robbie. Thank you so much again for coming. Um, but I have these three questions that oh, I yes. ask. Oh. Um, I only asked Robbie these questions at the beginning of our interview before I pressed record, so she hasn't had much time to think about it. But the first one is, what is the most important lesson that you have learned? Well, I was asked this earlier in the year, and I said that it is not about me. And I've reflected on that over the last few months. And there is something in that in terms of as we travel through life, we're running a little drama the whole time, whether you're an actor or not. And the central character is here. But it's not the story. And it's not discounting yourself or discounting your needs or whatever. But the minute one relates to the world from a perspective of it's, I really am not the centre of this. Conflicts become so much easier to manage. You know, like daily problems become easier. Parenting becomes easier to manage. Like it's so easy to take everything personally from a, even from the perspective of going into a supermarket and seeing at the moment and seeing someone in front of you not wearing a mask and getting all, in high dudgeon about that Mm. and then if I think no this is not about me they've got their reason I need to respect that so yeah at the moment that's the one that I'm finding a very useful lesson and probably if I look back if I'd had a bit of that going on more in previous moments in my life I may have handled certain things with a little more grace Mm. or a little more gentleness That's a really good one. So then what is the lesson that you still have to learn? Oh, um, 
that it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely valid, all these ones are The lesson ongoing. that I still have to learn is if I could get to the end of my life and the inner critical voice had been left on the wayside somewhere, that would be a good thing. I think that's the one that I still need to learn is to get that voice to fuck, you know, because mm. we all have them. Oh, yeah. And they are crippling. Yeah. And we learn to deal with them by either blaming or shaming somebody else sometimes or by blaming or shaming ourselves and it gets in the road, it blocks the view sometimes. And I don't know what the lesson is, the exact lesson is, but if I could find a way to remove that, that's probably the second half of life's work, I think. I think a lot of people will relate to that, including yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really tough one, isn't it? It's a really tough one. Yeah. I remember hearing it was a lovely phrase. Uh, second... It seems so pointless so much of the time. Oh, like, so why, why am I thinking these things? If only I didn't, yeah, <laughs> everything yeah, would yeah. be easier. I remember hearing someone describe it as um, pulling a second arrow on yourself. So you have an argument with someone and then you feel even worse because you're telling yourself off for the fact that you had the argument. So you're doubling down on everything negatively, which I think is the problem behind a lot of bad behaviour. People double down on bad behaviour because of that second arrow that's making them feel defensive about their own stuff, you know. And if we were able to be a little bit more forgiving of ourselves, I think there would be a lot less arsiness in the world. I know what you mean. I've been, I think because life has been a slower recently, my, my um, one of the lessons that I still have to learn is just to slow down because my natural rhythm is, is very fast and I sort of have this innate feeling that I have to rush all the time and respond fast, even if I'm absolutely not in a rush. So it's interesting. <laughs> I'm just not in a rush. I've got nothing to do today, but have to do everything fast yeah. still. But at the moment, because everything literally has slowed down, I'm I'm forced into a slower gear. And also because I have a baby now, you're just you know forced into yeah. this slow gear, which is such a brilliant thing for me. So I'm I'm noticing, I'm really able to notice what my triggers are and how I am triggered because because I've got nothing else to, to sort of do. I'm sort of really in the experience. And mm. every single time the lesson for me is don't react in the moment. Just yeah. don't. Just sit with it because things absolutely change. And as feelings and thoughts flood down through your system, they do eventually get better and you're able to be more grounded and give a fairer a, response yes. to what, like every single time that's the lesson. It's a weather system. It's mm -hmm. just a weather system. Better to act yeah. in the summer. There's this, <laughs> better to act in the summer. That's beautiful. There's this wonderful um, woman who I've been listening to for years who podcasts called Tara Brack and she's a, oh yeah, she's great. Um, you know, the Buddhist psychologist and she talks about this, she calls it the sacred pause where she talks about between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And in that space is your liberty and your freedom, which is a really lovely poetic way of saying just count to 10. Just count to 10. It'll just help so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Don't send the email when you're angry. Don't send the text when you're yeah. angry. Even if you, you really are angry and feel like you're in the right, just wait a while. Actually, that is a regret. Angry emails after 10 p.m., <laughs> I went through a phase of those in my mid-40s, and I do regret those. <laughs> so anyone who's who received one of those emails, Robin, regrets them. I do, and I apologise. <laughs> 
Because also, at you know, after 10 p.m., you're really good with words. <laughs> That's really when your brain, neurons are firing extremely <laughs> efficiently right. after 10. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, okay. And so just a small um, nothing question for the final one. Rob and Malcolm, how do we make the most of our lives? <laughs> No. Oh, how do you make the most of your life? I'm going to roll out a whole bunch of cliches, but I think it's about loving with all your heart. I think it's about seeing what's around you. It's terrible. Here comes another big cliche, but I actually do mean it. Being really true to you. Like, being your own wingman, being your own support person, being the person that's cheering you on from the sidelines, you know, being the person that's being your own guide, you know, that thing of not letting other people tell you what to think and believe and do, you know, being kind, being gentle, being angry, being sad, being, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Those all sounded like great things. <laughs> Yeah, I'm working it out. Come on, let's talk again when I'm 95 and right. I'll have... We'll talk again in season 36. In season 36 and I'll have a better answer for you, but I'll be, I'll, I'll be so old I won't, I won't be able to remember what it is. <laughs> no, I, that was a beautiful answer. I, I think you're right. It's about being a human being. Yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Robbie. It was just oh. so special to... Have you on the podcast and um, have you over at my house and you got to meet Freddie? Oh, Freddie, he's delicious. He delicious. And actually, how great is it to talk about this shit? Because really we don't great. usually do it, you know. Mm-hmm. We Well, maybe you do, but I sit at home and talk about MBA a lot. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I do like talking about the stuff, but yeah, I talk a lot about trains and Harry McCleary. Of course you do. Which is great, though. Yeah. I do like that, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Harry McCleary. Absolutely not. Oh, I'm going to burp. We have to turn the microphone off. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And there we go. A lot of good lessons in there and notes to self that I will definitely take away with me. I hope you got good stuff out of it too. And that was actually the last episode in season one of The Most of It. So thank you so much for coming along on this journey with me. I have really loved creating this series and I could not have done it without my amazing producing partners, Raw Collective. So huge thank you to them. And to all of you, please go well out there. And I hope you've learned a thing or two throughout this series that will help all of you to make the most of it. Until next time. Bye.